And if you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Timothy 3 or phone apps if you have those. Bible program on that. We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, as mentioned, uh, 1 Timothy 3 deals with leadership. And John Maxwell says up here on the uh, slide, he says, The church is an organism, organism meaning a living, growing body. The organism must have organization. The organization must have oversight. And therefore, Paul, the apostle, calls for church leaders to give oversight to this organization. Um, organism, I should say. I never really felt like a leader when I was growing up. I think I was damaged when I was in ninth grade and almost got impeached when I was the class treasurer, which was more of a popularity contest, probably. And, uh, and, and I, I never considered myself a leader. There were smarter people than me. There were more, intel, uh, more musical, more talented people than me. There were better communicators than me, just more charisma, etc. And so I didn't really see myself as a leader during those days of my adolescence. But then God called me into church leadership to be pastor. And at first, I got to tell you, I felt a little bit like um, Jeremiah or like Moses. Jeremiah being, who am I? I'm just a young kid. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Or, or like Moses, who was older at the time, he said, I'm not a good communicator. I stutter. I, I, you got to find someone else. There are w w way more people who are qualified than I am. And so I kind of felt that way. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever been called in to lead something. I'll find someone else. Timothy must have felt that way. He was relatively young compared to Paul. And Paul entrusted Timothy into this messy church of Ephesus. Kind of complicated, had some issues. And, uh, and Paul wasn't there, but Timothy was to remain and lead this church. Well, Timothy felt young, and so Paul encouraged Timothy, you know, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. You can do this, Timothy, in strength of our Lord. Jim Collins' bestseller, Good to Great, Why Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Jim Collins and his research team, they tried to pinpoint the principles that would determine greatness, not only in a business, but in a family and in a church. And so they tried to discern this by interviewing CEOs and looking at a lot of different organizations. And I find it very interesting that Collins pointed out that the first factor of becoming good to great as a leader would be having to be a level five leader. If you want to be a great leader, you had to be level five. That doesn't sound too promising. Well, according to good to great, level one leader would have been a highly uh, capable individual, one who was talented and knowledgeable and skilled, had good work habits. And then there was a level two leader, according to the book, which would be a contributing team member who works effectively with others in a group uh, to achieve a goal. And then there's a level three leader, which would be defined as a competent manager, one who organizes a group of people, resources, together to a predetermined objective. Then there's a level four leader, which is an effective leader who catalyzes commitment to a clear vision, stimulates higher performance in others. And so the interesting thing about this book, they, they determine that you don't, one doesn't have to go from level one, two, three, four, climb the level ladder to get to level five leader. He says anyone is capable of doing the level five leadership. But we tend to think of great leaders as 
being effective and visionary and driven and charismatic and strong and decisive, and they have these big personalities, and people will naturally follow them. That's who we look to as leaders. But Collins and his team were surprised to discover that all of the greatest leaders possess something different. Level five leaders, as you already see up here, are servant leaders. Uh, They care more for the organization than for themselves or their own image. These are leaders who ask what they can do for the company or for the people rather than what people can do for them. Servant leaders. Jim Collins and his team, research team, they devoted 15,000 hours of effort, studied 6,000 articles, generated more than 2,000 pages of interview transcripts with CEOs of companies, created 384 million bytes of computer data just to come up with a conclusion that the Bible has taught for centuries. That is, the way up is down. We lead by serving and we serve by leading. So what does it mean to be a leader? Simply a leader meets needs. And the needs might be, you might be a task-oriented leader doing behind-the-scenes things, or you might be a relational-type leader who kind of encourage people. But in either case, a leader influences others. And a leader earns their influence by their consistency. Simply put, a leader serves. Jesus said it this way, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Someone said, if you wish to be a leader, you will become frustrated, for very few people wish to be led. Is that not true? But if you aim to be a servant, you'll never be frustrated. So Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, deals with characteristics, qualities of a leader. And I'll just read the first seven verses from Uh, Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He, He writes, Here's a trustworthy saying, Timothy. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well, see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So Lord, bless your word, I pray. Uh, Make it come to life for us and applicable to our lives, Lord. Empower us to walk in faith and obedience. Amen. Well, it would be pretty straightforward reading here that if you were to read this passage, especially uh, with another passage, then you you would determine that leaders in churches, at least in churches, are males, right? It would seem that way. Now, women can be leaders in every other sector of life, people say. They could be uh, firefighters. They, they could be uh, governors. They can even be vice presidents. Uh, they could be uh, judges. They, they could be lawyers and, and doctors. But they're not qualified to serve in the church as leaders.
That's what people think if you hold to that um, complementarian view. Well, this isn't what we teach in this church, and it's not what we teach in our denomination either. And if you were here to hear last week's sermon on women who lead, then you would know why in in great detail from chapter 2. If you weren't here, then I'd encourage you to listen to it or re-listen to it again on the internet on our church website. But at the same time, we just read chapter 3, and it seemed that Paul used, referred to men. You know, he is faithful to his wife. A leader must manage his family well. He must see that his children obey him. He must not be a recent convert, in verse 6. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. But if you were to spend time studying this and use the tool that I used this last week, the word study New Testament, Greek, English, interlinear Bible, you would discover that in the original language Paul wrote this to Timothy, he never, refer- he, he never used the male pronoun in describing a leader. In the first 16 verses of 1 Timothy 3, never once in the Greek used the words he or him. Rather, they were inclusive of both male and female. Nine different times, though, the NIV translators, as I just read in this Bible, use the word him or he, where the pronouns in Greek would include both men and women. As we see in verse 1, whoever aspires to be an overseer. That was, that was, those were the pronouns used throughout. They got it right in verse 1, but not in the rest of the chapter. So then why would the translators in the NIV and many other English translations use the male pronouns if they're not in Greek? Well, it could be perhaps they realized this because they're Greek scholars, but they thought, but yet Paul was addressing male leaders in Ephesus because as we looked at last week, the female converts in Ephesus who were yet untrained or, or uneducated coming in many cases from a false religion, the Temple of Diana, and they were enthusiastic about the faith, but they were not yet qualified to be leaders because they were not trained yet. And so, in fact, the leaders in the early church in Ephesus were males at first because they were the ones who were educated and trained. But women were to remain quiet in Ephesus until they first learned and sat at the feet of the teachers, which they were never allowed to do prior to that in Christendom or in Judaism. And so maybe that's why the interpreters used the male pronoun here, because that was the context of Ephesus at the time. But in our current context, circumstances are quite different, because women are educated. In fact, according to Jim Dennison's report, Women today earn almost 60% of the undergraduate degrees of colleges, as well as 60% of the graduate degrees. Women earn 47% of law degrees and 48% of medical degrees. So women are educated today. They can learn, they can think, they can discern. They go to seminary. 
If Paul had intended to exclude women from serving as leaders for all time, then he would have never mentioned women in his other letters. For example, in Romans 16, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. Deacon, another word for deacon is minister of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her as the Lord in a way worthy of his people. Many believe that Phoebe would have been the carrier of Paul's letter into Rome. And being the courier, uh, she would have uh, been available to answer any questions in the letter and to teach or communicate the intent of Paul from the book of Romans, which was a huge task. She was a minister. These were the days before deacons and elders would have been named a little bit later. She came before that. So Phoebe was a minister or deacon, and Paul commended her. And as you recall from last week's message, there are many other women who are cited in Paul's writings who served as leaders. Uh, But not only in Paul's writings, you can go back to the Old Testament and learn about Deborah and Esther and and Huldah and so many others who God used and raised up. So we believe this letter in 1 Timothy was descriptive of what was happening at that time, rather than prescriptive for all women for all time. So as we read through this passage, we'll be focusing on men and women together as leaders. That's what we believe is biblical in our church and denomination. And so even though I'm using the NIV context, you can apply it to yourself as well, women. So 1 Timothy 3.1, here's a trustworthy saying Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach. At this point, leaders were categorized as overseers and deacons. Uh, Verse 8, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. In the same way. So we have overseers who are elders or bishops or pastors or shepherds. These are leaders who are called to give spiritual and visionary insight, oversight to the church, such as our leadership team today or our staff members. And then there were deacons who are those who would lead by caring for the practical needs of people. We have a deacon care team who visit people in the hospital who who are hurting, uh, suffering. We have a properties team leaders. We have finance team leaders. We have those who make church meals and and serve. We have workers and ushers and greeters. We have those who care for the needs of others and so on share ministry by caring in very tangible ways. And so in some way, these are every bit as as important as the elders, uh, but they're deacons and they're caring for the practical needs. In our church, there are a few pastors, but we are all ministers, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. We should all desire to influence others. If a leader is one who influences, we should all desire that. In the New Testament design, there seems to be flex- flexibility in the structure, but the emphasis is rather on the character of the leader. And so Paul focuses on the character qualities of these leaders. So I want you to ask, Do I fit this description here? Remembering that a leader is one who meets needs. Uh, You may not feel like you're a leader again, but if you're a grandparent or a parent 
or a big brother or sister, or if you rock babies in the nursery or volunteer with a youth ministry, or if you are a friend, a new believer, then you are a leader if you're meeting the needs relationally or in a task way. If you're helping someone move or, or helping swing a hammer, you're a task leader. So now the overseer is to be above reproach and faithful to his wife. This word above reproach, uh, there will be nothing in a leader's life that others could take a hold of. That's what that phrase means, above reproach, to take a hold of. And, and if they take a hold of it, they can accuse you, and in accusing you, they can discredit the church. So you're, you live your lives above reproach. You don't do anything that's controversial in that sense. Um, faithful to his wife. It literally means in Greek, a one-woman man. This didn't mean that leaders had to be married, though. They had to be a one-woman man to be a leader and have a wife and a family. Otherwise, Paul would have been disqualified as Paul was unmarried. Paul was simply disqualifying men who were unfaithful to their wives. And then you might be asking, then why didn't also Paul use the word one-man-woman if women could be leaders? Well, as we already discussed the culture and the context, but even furthermore, It'd be rare in that culture for a woman to cheat on her husband or to live in a polygamous relationship. But it would not have been rare for a man to do so in that culture. Even today, we sometimes hear of male leaders of various cults or other religions who have a plethora of wives. You know, they have a harem of wives. And and we think, okay, that's kind of weird, but it's normal for them but how many religions do you see a woman leader with many husbands? I don't recall any. However, adulterous affairs would certainly disqualify both men and women from serving in a church if they're currently secretly having an affair, obviously. And that's what Paul was getting at. There are more qualities of a leader. Verse 2, the overseer is to be self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 2, self-control means temperate or moderate, not given to extremes by displaying wide swings of mood or action. It's an important quality to possess as a leader, especially in our climate of partisan politics with a wide variety of multiple opinions out there. You have to be willing to understand and respect whatever side uh, they, they must be respectable, which means sober-minded, which means literally not constantly joking. And I think I'm just disqualified right here. Um, but it really doesn't mean that a leader can't tell jokes or use their sense of humor. What it means is they're not frivolous about everything. They're willing to be serious, to tackle serious issues when need be. They're to be hospitable. They're the first ones who will welcome a visitor in the church. They'll be known for being friendly in that sense. They'll be the first ones to open up their home to others. They're able to teach. Leaders are lifelong students of God's word. And they learn in their own private lives and in their classes. And and they go to Christian formation classes because they're always learning. And what they're learning, they're passing on. Now, they may, in turn, able to teach others publicly. Or it may just be a private teaching of you with your child at the dinner table or one-on-one 
This is what I'm learning from God's word. They're able to teach. Verse 3, they're not given to drunkenness. We know what that means. Uh, They're not violent. Oftentimes, drunkenness will lead to violence. But if you look at this word, it means really not contentious and not quarrelsome, not argumentative. As a young principal pastor, I made this mistake because I wanted to prove myself to be worthy of respect. And I I know the truth, and I'm going to teach everyone. And so I remember this young woman, young girl actually, like a 16, 17-year-old girl coming to youth group one night with some friends. She happened to be from out of the country, and she was a guest, and it was exciting to meet her. But this girl was outspoken and confident, and so she challenged me with some spiritual questions. And and so when I tried to answer them, she uh, strongly disagreed, and they were they were unbiblical, her thoughts. I knew that because I know God's word. And so I challenged her. And so we got into this debate back and forth when she raised in her argument level, then I raised in mine and I pressed my, part, my point harder until she finally just got frustrated, turned, did a 180, walked right out of the building. And I won the argument. Thank you very much. But I lost the influence and opportunity in relationship. This is what it means. Don't be so quarrelsome and contentious in the name of truth. Rather, he says, be gentle. We can cease to display the kindness and gentleness of Jesus Christ to others in the name of truth. But Peter said, you don't have to compromise either. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect for the other person. Leaders do not have a love for money. I've had friends who love money. I can remember some people because they get stressed out about money. Uh, they're so, their thoughts are always about how I can earn more. I'm never quite satisfied enough. How much is enough? Not this much, not this much. And they become uptight about finances. It seems like to be a top topic of conversation whether we're getting gas or whether he loaned money to someone and didn't come back or whether she's not a lover of money. Financial prosperity isn't bad, but it can become dangerous, especially in churches when we place our security in our bank account rather than in the Lord. God has been really faithful to our church over the years that we've been here. Well, for a hundred and some years, we're still in existence. But especially in the past couple of years, God has been faithful through his people and, and because of our faith campaign like five, six years ago, which means freedom accomplished, imagine the harvest, faith. Which means that we paid off this new part of the church building, two point some million dollars or three million dollars. We paid it off, and because we paid it off, we don't have to pay the, the payments to the bank any longer. Instead, it freed up funds for us, freedom accomplished, Imagine the harvest. Imagine how generous we can be in our community and in our world to really care for those who are broken and hurting if we're financially free. We are financially free. And because of that, we're, some months we have excess to what the budget requires. And in this excess, we set it aside and we're able to give generously. In fact, the leadership team meets every month and there's, at least, there's been $5,000 extra at least every month for the past year and a half that we're able to bless others with, other ministries and missions. 
because you continue to faithfully give. And what a blessing. We are, in a, in a sense, tithing sacrificially as a church, even as you're tithing sacrificially to the church and mission of this church. What a blessing. Jesus said, give and, it will be, and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaking together to make room for more. God, God says, if you give, if you faithfully give generously, then I'll pour more into you so that you can continue to bless. Paul continues in verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of respect. In other words, leaders must manage their families and children well. The home is where faith must first be demonstrated. Children will continue to be respectful in general when they see spiritual consistency in their parents. Again, this doesn't imply that leaders must be parents, leaders in churches. Again, Paul would be disqualified. My parents were not perfect. They're pretty quirky, if I must be truthful but at least they were consistent in their faith. They were who they were at home, and they were the same way at church and in the community. They were just consistent, and they loved the Lord. And as a result, when I became a teenager and adolescent, like many of my other church friends, I had no desire to rebel against my parents' faith because of hypocrisy. I can't believe those hypocrites. I, I love the Lord because of their example. And many of you are demonstrating that same type of example as parents and grandparents here. You are living consistent lives with your young ones. But sometimes children go through patches of, of confusion and, and difficulty, especially during the tumultuous adolescent years. And so sometimes if someone's serving in leadership in the church, they might want to take a, a few-year break in order to invest in their, their kids during that time. And I think that's what Paul was driving at here. And then in verse 6, leaders must not be recent converts, or he may become conceited, fall under the same judgment as the devil. Interestingly, Paul again uses the he pronoun, the male pronoun. Well, it seems that some men, similar to the women in Ephesus that we looked at last week, they had a lot of zeal and they had a lot of knowledge but they weren't yet qualified to be a leader because they had little knowledge. They were not educated as of yet. So Paul says, you know, you're not qualified to be a leader, male or female, if you're not yet equipped and grounded in the faith because when difficult issues arise, you won't know how to handle them. Now, the devil's judgment was when he tried to grasp for illegitimate authority, God's authority. Remember in the garden? It didn't belong to him, but he wanted, that, he wanted to be like God. And so he fell and he was judged. This is a type of illegitimate authority we looked at last week that some women and apparently maybe some men were trying to grasp for when it was not yet given to them. It was not earned yet. And yet they wanted to be leaders. They wanted to be the authorities. And Paul says, no, you must remain silent and learn before you are, have the qualities for leadership. Verse 7, you must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. A good reputation is earned over time by your consistent behavior, and even unbelievers will notice it in you by your grace, by your love, by your, your generosity. 
a good reputation is earned. When I meet people around town and they tell, and I tell them, you know, I belong to that church north of town, you know where it is, it's got the big roof, it's got the garden, oh yeah, I drive by that all the time. It's Countryside Covenant, that's where I serve on staff there. And they say, man, uh, so-and-so goes to your church. He's such a great guy. Man, he is, he is so kind and, and gracious. Or she is so gentle and, and kind and caring. Uh, and so I've heard that over and over and over again, how you are leaders in this community and, and you represent Christ not only in these walls of this church, but in our community as well. You make my job a joy. I'm going to talk a little bit about deacons, um, not as much deacons because many of the same characteristics are repeated. But similar to elders, deacons had to be no, were known for their character in verse 8. Deacons are, are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, which means they must prove themselves. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Deacons are ones who have, have a proven reputation of being consistent and faithful in their acts of service to their families, to their church. Um, when we choose leaders here uh, for a leadership team or, or just any leader in the church, we always ask, have they, do they have a history of being proven? Have they been servant, do they have servant hearts? Are they contentious? Are they whatever, you know? And so when we get together as a nominating committee, we just say, hey, this makes sense. I mean, they're serving faithfully, not for their own glory. And so they're, they have these qualities of being a leader, elder or deacon. Verse 12, a deacon must be faithful to his wife, manage children, and household well. Once again, Paul would have been disqualified if required a deacon to have a wife and children. Paul was referred to himself as a deacon uh, seven different times in his writings. For example, in 1 Corinthians, who is Paulos and who is Paul? Only servants or diakonoi in Greek through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned each their task. Deacons are known for their faithful acts of service. In verse 13, those who have served well gain an excellent standing, a good reputation. They're also known for their faith in Christ. They have a great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Oswald Sanders writes, true greatness, true leadership is found in giving yourself in service to others, not in coaxing or inducing others to serve you. Erwin McManus writes, only place people in leadership who leave more than they take as they relate to people. So they're proven, they're servant-hearted, they're humble, they're other-centered. These are the leaders that Paul is endorsing here. Verse 11, in the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and, not trust, and trustworthy in everything. In the same way as these men, women, women are to be worthy. Many believe he's talking about women who serve as ministers or deacons here. But he could be referring to wives of the deacons as well in this context. We don't know for sure. Finally, leaders are only as effective as their dependence on Christ. 
Um, and this is my final point. I'm almost done. First point is leaders have character qualities of good character, and leaders have acts of service and kindness. And they're known for those two. But thirdly and finally, leaders are dependent on Christ. Um, And that's why Paul ends in verse 16. He focuses on Christ. He said, this is the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, Jesus. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He preached among the nations, was believed in the world, was taken up into glory. This is who you pattern your life after, but even more so, you don't try to be like Jesus. You allow Jesus to live his life in you and through you. And that's how you will be effective leaders. Ron Hutchcraft said, Jesus never said, follow my religion or follow my followers. He didn't say, follow my rules or follow my leaders, but he repeatedly said, follow me. True leaders will follow Jesus in true dependence and will reflect his character and his kindness. Brother Lawrence lived almost 500 years ago. You might have seen his book uh, called Practice, pra- the Practice of the Presence of God. It's a classic. It's blessed ten, hundreds of thousands of people in the ages. But Brother Lawrence, you know what he did in his monastery? He was the dishwasher. He worked in the kitchen for 30 years. He never sought or received a promotion. He served as a dishwasher. Would he ever be, have been considered a leader? Heck no. He's just a dishwasher. And yet, because of the letters that he compiled in his devotional notes from his own relationship with the Lord and dependence on the Lord, they were compiled into book form and it's become a bestseller that has touched the lives of millions over the centuries. The practice of the presence of God. We're all leaders. Simply defined, leaders are servants. They're known for their dependence on the Lord. They're known for their good behavior, good character. And they're known for their faithful acts for others, being other-centered, humble people. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sanctuary filled with leaders. Lord, if you've called us, you've called us to leadership in some form or fashion. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you continue to make us humble and teachable and Christ-centered. Would you mold your character in us and uh, give us the strength to serve you faithfully so that it will be known even in the community, Lord. We, We offer yourselves, Lord. Continue to refine us, Lord. Amen.